Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David, why don't you bring in our steam guest from uh, the derivative mines of Chicago? <laughs> Chris Giancarlo is with us. He's the chairman of the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. And uh, you've been on the job in the, the commissioner, the cha- commissioner capacity for a couple of years. That's right. Chairman capacity here for a couple of, of, of months. Um, what are your goals here? What do you hope to accomplish uh, in that role? I think back on the crisis and the aftermath and the way the mandate of or our recognition of the mandate of the CFTC was expanded uh, so much and certainly our recognition of how big this marketplace uh, is as well. What do you hope to change? What do you hope to do here uh, in this new job? Sure. It's about building a forward-looking uh, regulatory agenda that, that balances smart regulation, well-tailored regulation uh, against uh, economic growth and, and, and broad-based prosperity. How do we get the balance right between regulating these vitally important markets and doing it in a way that doesn't um, impede strong and broad-based economic growth in this country? How, how, I said the marketplace is big. How big is it and, and how global is this marketplace in terms of your purview? What is it? Sure. So so uh, there's a lot of different measures of the size of the of the over-the-counter derivative market. ISDA just did some numbers that bring it at about $480 trillion before what's called compression where they net down those positions. But it's a very, very large market. But it's, it's an, a market that has a vital economic purpose. Uh, the reason, as I said before, the reason why Americans enjoy as their standard Standard home ownership tool, a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, is because these deep and liquid interest rate swaps markets enable banks to provide, on one hand, a stable rate over a 30-year life okay. while they hedge that risk in these <clears throat> big markets. Great. Then why do we get in this trouble? Chairman Greenspan agrees with you. Years ago, he said derivatives are a constructive force within American finance. Chris Whalen agrees with that as well. Then why do we get in trouble? We get in trouble because some people i.e. AIG, uh, back in the day, uh, misused these products and really were incompetent at hedging their risk. But other other players in the market adequately hedged their risks and were used these products safely. So their you know, um, uh, failed usage of these products can cause trouble, as they can in any other marketplace. What makes these products different is the amount of leverage. Okay. Anytime you deal with leverage and a degree of incompetence yeah. utilization, you can have risk. Twice you've said the key word. Can we regulate dumb? Can we regulate incompetence? I wish we always could. (laughs) (laughs) Hope springs eternal. We will continue to try to do so. But um, uh, that's why you have regulators. How, you mentioned we have regulators. How, how big is your staff? Is it big enough? There's been the, the constant complaint from you and the SEC uh, about the, the size Tucker's of the budget and the size of the staff. Do you feel like the budget is big enough to do all that you've been charged with doing? Well, we, we have asked for a 12% increase in our budget this year, and we, we need that, that additional funds be, for three areas. Uh, one is we need more examiners, which gets to this question of dumb. Um, we need more economists. Um, once upon a time, the CFTC was known as an econometrically based agency. Unfortunately, in recent years, we've become very much of a legal and a lawyer-based agency. We want to get some of that balance back with strong economists. And then thirdly, we really want to be very forward-looking technologically, which is why we've launched Lab CFTC. It's Friday. We do gossip on Friday. (laughs) What was it like being the only guy on the planet appointed by President Obama 
Did you get a phone call from President Trump saying, hey, I like you. Let's keep this thing going. Well, how did that happen? Yeah. So, so you know, I was appointed by President Obama because uh, I was, I guess, one of the few Republicans to say, look, whatever you might think about Dodd-Frank, Title VII works. The Congress got Title VII right. The CFTC may have gotten some of the implementation wrong and it's rushed to roll out the rules. A Title Seven works. Did you have like breakfast with Steve Bannon, or you know, how did this happen? <laughs> I think the Trump administration looked at the things I was saying, looked at my approach, and said, "Yeah, this, we we agree. Title Seven does work, but we do need it implemented correctly." Right. And Giancarlo's the guy to do it. Are they training you to be Secretary of State? Is that where this is going? <laughs> Let's see what we can do right here at the CFTC <laughs> okay, before we get good. on to anything else. Very quickly, just remembering my DC geography, you're about a mile and a half away from the SEC. When you look at the regulatory landscape, how well are you working with the other regulatory agencies? Is that still something that needs to, yeah. to change? We're working very well with Jay Clayton and the SEC. Uh, he and I speak probably weekly. Uh, we have a chairman-to-chairman working group that is looking at a laundry list of outstanding issues that haven't been resolved for a long time. Um, with the Fed, um, uh, uh, Governor Powell and I speak probably weekly as well. We just had a staff-to-staff a meeting going through a range of issues. Uh, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, um, uh, has been doing a great job with his recent reports, and we're working very well together as well. Chairman, thank you so much. We want you to leave happy. So on a Friday, for Chris Giancarlo, we want him happy. What else but deliverance and banjo music? Talk with Ken Senna here. We're waiting for Gary Cohn. He's going to be speaking <coughs> with our colleagues on Bloomberg Daybreak America. We'll carry that conversation yeah. as soon as it begins. So we're going to begin here as we wait for that with Ken Senna. He's a senior analyst with Wells Fargo Securities, and he's embarked on a, a fascinating project here. We talk a lot about AI and the role that uh, AI may play in changing research. Of course, there's plenty of regulatory stuff changing the, the research field uh, as well. Ken, let's just start with what you've done sure. here. This is kind of a more than a thought experiment. You brought in some AI to to help her see what what AI could do to research. Right. What did you learn? I brought out some brought in some um, the big guns be, yes. beyond my <laughs> yeah beyond what I what I can do. But um, I worked with a, a data scientist, Brian Healy, from uh, formerly of of Amazon, who worked on the Alexa. And uh, what we what we tried to do was just figure out well. Where are we in this cycle? Is it kind of late stage? Is it is it in the beginning? And think through, um, well, how accessible are these tools that are coming to market? And you know, and what does that mean? And you know, could we take a role like even you know an equity research analyst and start to find ways to you know improve on it? And so it was really done more as an experiment, almost more of an exercise, just to see you know if we could do it, how far we could get. But he had confidence all the way along. I was pretty skeptical. What can this thing do? So how do I pronounce this? Era? Era. Era. Yes. <laughs> well, and you, use the, you use a feminine pronoun to, to, well, to talk it's, about it. So, yeah. it's, it's the um, artificially intelligent equity research analyst, right? Uh-huh. And so what it does is um, it can predict stocks. Um, right now it's predicting stocks a day out and a week out. Um, and it can it can consume a tremendous amount of information. And I think that for us, um, this is very different than a robo-advisor. It's not programmed. Um, Era learns based on the data collection, and the data that she collects would be around 48,000 articles 
per day that she can crunch down to what's most important in terms of the movement within the stock price, right, based on her training. And so for me as, a, as an equity research analyst, the important thing is to be able to train, you know, to learn first, you know, what are, you know, what is a neural network, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it so important? What is it doing for the companies that I'm covering within Internet? And why is, is why are we seeing all of these applications of artificial intelligence so suddenly, right? So for me, it was really um, an exercise in trying to learn the tools that are coming to market, how accessible they are, and how good they perform, right? And and it really did shape and, and I think highlight um, many of the more important fundamental themes as then we kind of work through and we did a big launch piece on, 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 on all the internet names um, <clears throat> within our space. And it really framed for us um, the pace of adoption around these tools, and not only um, not only that, but the sense of both, um, you know, what do law of large numbers mean for some of these internet guys as you introduce this technology, and how scalable are their business models as you introduce this technology too? Because the the interesting thing for um, a project like Era is that <clears throat> again we're not programming her, right? She 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 programs herself based on the data that she's collecting. So it sets off a trend I think that, you know, no data is enough, right? To the extent that everyone can capture or you know, companies can capture data, these neural nets can run over that data and find patterns and find, you know, to draw conclusions that weren't possible before. <clears throat> and so that is what yeah. I'm really trying to explain. So you and Mike Mayo are on the Wells Fargo stagecoach. It's like the movie stagecoach. Right. Is he like throwing you off the stagecoach, or are you throwing him off? <laughs> we, spoke, we, what, we, what, we spoke last night. You saw, good, you're on speaking yeah. terms. That's a surveillance yeah. break exclusive. <laughs> Another thanks to Mike Mayo for the uh, inflatable stagecoach toy that he sent. Yes, but what do you that. do with traditional research? What's Mike Mayo's job if you are prescient enough to look forward any number of days, weeks, or quarters? Well, I think what caught his attention most last night when we were talking is I said, well, I said you could look at the research reports that ERA is writing right now where she breaks down her, you know, her predictions and provides the source articles and writes about the information that she's collecting and say, well, it's, you know, she's probably at the level of a junior associate analyst, right? And I think, you know, uh, I think lights went off for him when, when, when I explained it to him that way. But what we're doing for our clients is we're showing them her output, right? And we're trying to help our clients get involved with her progression and get clients more comfortable with some of these yeah. terms so that we're not categorizing everything under artificial intelligence. There are specific frameworks that are coming to market. They're driving specific applications and services uh, that companies are adopting. And we just feel that as technology becomes so important to this overall space, okay. they, people well, understand. I don't mean to interrupt, but her, her research. Okay, Sally Krawcheck was once a junior analyst. Right. How does Sally Krawcheck become Sally Krawcheck well, at Stanford Bernstein if she starts out as a black box? Well, see, she's not. See, this is <clears throat> she's era's not a black box. If we took, I would say era's less than. You know, one of the things, one of the part, the part, the important part about explaining era to our, our investors is explaining that um, neural networks are not all that complicated on the uh, at their basics. Right. You're talking about compute nodes and connections per node. Mm. Um, Era is less than 100 nodes. Google's neural networks go up to the hundreds of billions of nodes we understand, right? Um, They become much more black box than what we're doing. What we're doing is we're just showing how machine learning could draw better, you know, can, can pull in more information, draw conclusions, maybe eliminate bias. And, and so, 
what we're, we're we're not trying to necessarily become opaque. We're trying to be actually very transparent. I think with with clients as far as how this okay. technology works. I, I mean, if I take somebody legendary like Alice Beebe Longley, who is just ginormous in household products and doing research, I believe Ms. Longley uh, uh, did buy hold sell. Right. Does Air do buy hold sell? Air does. But what Air? What's do? the back test? Well, I would say that for the hour slots right now, she's doing over 70%. Um, for the, the week slots, she's doing okay. better than 50 So, Folks, that's like Aaron Judge, and he doesn't strike out, just but, so you know. But the reason is, but, but what's important about this is that Aaron is constantly learning. It's, she's learning 24-7. Unlike Alice B.B. Longley. Come right. on. I mean, what do you mean constantly? It's iterative? Well, no. So she, <clears throat> as long as she's collecting more data, the she's training she's training on... It, uh, basically, on every result, it trains how she weights the inputs, right? So the more results that she can see, the mm-hmm. better she can understand yeah. the inputs that come in. A couple of minutes left here. Ken Sen has been patient here with Wells Fargo as we look at a research revo- uh, a revolution. Uh, you know, you, you've got great experience on the Internet and the technology stocks. The CFA Institute doesn't do much with technology. What does the CFA Institute need to know from Ken Senna about how technology folds into Graham, Dodd, and Cottle? Well, I think how decisions get made. Uh, Ken, you've done this before. The well, mic is over here. Sorry. It's his first sorry, interview. Sorry. Um, gosh, I mean, I think that we're all going to have to have a do. We're all going to have to have a deeper appreciation, I think, for what this technology means. I think it's going to impact every platform. I think it will impact every industry. I think it will impact every geography. And, you know, for me, as I work on this research, it's really much bigger about what I'm doing in equity research. And it it's takes bigger a, about equity research. It takes a bias out. It's, well, it's bigger than equity research. It's bigger. It's what can this technology do now that it couldn't do three or four years ago? Mm-hmm. And, and how does that flow through businesses and industries and ultimately governments? And I think that um, there are important questions that come out of this research. And for me, it was, you know, I write it and I think that, you know, I'm writing about the world now changing. And I, I believe it. Mm-hmm. And I would really, I would stake my career okay. on it. I think it's well, so important. We got to get you and your colleague Peter uh, uh, back on the internet stocks as well. Ken Senna with Wells Fargo. Yes, we'll do buy out sell on the Fangs and the others with Ken Senna, but right now on air and uh, the idea of what we can do with artificial intelligence, bringing in all the news flow and trying to look a little bit forward. Mr. Senna is with Wells Fargo. This is an important interview, David, uh, with Gary Cohn. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you look at who's in front here. I, I've noticed listening to the president talk about tax reform, he is wrapping himself in the the proposal that was released uh, Wednesday. We've mm. talked leading up to it about the big six and the role the big six was playing. Uh, the president, the big now six referring is to not the, the accounting firms, guys. That's correct. It's guys in Oxford suits. <laughs> Uh, let's go now to David Weston, our colleague, anchor of Bloomberg Daybreak America. He is sitting down with the head of the NEC, that is former uh, Gary Cohn, formerly of Goldman Sachs. From the White House, welcome back to Bloomberg, Gary. Good to have you here. So there's a lot, as I say, you're at the center of this now. There's a lot of talk about this new plan, a lot of things to discuss. But one question has been, really, what are the effects on the national economy? And specifically, we're being told that we could pay for these tax cuts because of growth. At the same time, we both know you're not going to pay on day one. How far in the red will we go before we turn cash positive on this plan? 
David, first of all, thank you very much for having me here, and thanks for the, for the great question. Remember, when we're talking about taxes, everyone is using a 10-year number. So all the numbers that are being talked about, whether they're the deficit or they're the pay-fors, they're being scheduled on a 10-year number. So when we talk about economic growth and we talk about growing GDP, which we believe our tax plan will do, we talk about creating economic growth over a 10-year cycle. If you can grow the GDP by 1%, which we're confident our tax plan can, we can pay down $3 trillion of the deficit by a 1% change in U.S. GDP over a 10-year number. So we're very excited about our tax plan. We think it's very stimulative for the U.S. economy by bringing back American companies to America, having them produce products back in America, and hiring American workers. So, so fair enough, Gary. And I know that this is what the president has sought to do, which you are trying to do. You're trying to grow the economy, all things that we all want. At the same time, when you ever have a startup company, you have to invest at the beginning. You go into the red, as you know so well, before you turn cash positive. So when would this turn cash positive for the U.S. government, and how far in the red would we go before we come back to positive? David, we understand that. We understand the investment cycle. We're, we're acutely attuned to that. If you look at some of the provisions that we've put into the tax code, we're absolutely encouraging front-end investment. We've allowed companies for the first five years in our tax plan to invest and take 100% write-off for any capital investment they make for the first five years. That's exactly what we want. We want people to invest capital up front so they can hire people, they can build plants, they can build equipment, they can hire people, and we get paid back over a long term, not just over the 10 years, but well beyond the 10 years. I can't sit here and say, hey, it's day 65, it's day 365, it's year five. The quicker we get going, the quicker we get the tax plan implemented, the quicker we get get a surety of where we are in the economy, the quicker we're going to get the tax plan implemented and the quicker we're going to get return on our investment. You know that, I know that. That's the way companies look at this. They look at return on capital and they look at it as quickly as possible. T totally right, totally right. At the same time, you must agree, I assume, Gary, that this would actually hurt revenues to the U.S. government in the short term. I mean, even under the Reagan tax plan, they lost over $200 billion in revenues over the first four years. David, look, we are putting incentives in place for companies to spend money in the United States, to bring jobs back to the United States, to bring businesses back to the United States, and we're allowing them to expense that front. Yes, this is going to cost some money in the beginning, but like every company that's ever been built in this, in this country, you invest up front to create greater returns over the long term. We as a country have to make an investment in this country. We have to invest in ourselves. We're creating a tax plan that encourages you to invest in this country and invest in the future of our country. So let's talk about how you're going to get this done, how you're going to get this through the Congress. One of the things that you're proposing is really curtailing the deductions for state and local taxes in order to pay for some of these tax cuts so we don't go too far into the red. Already we have Mr. Roskam, who is responsible for tax policies in the subcommittee, the House Ways and Means Committee, saying, you know what, we're going to have to make some accommodations for some of the members who come from high-tax states. By the way, Mr. Roskam's included in that because his own district takes something like $3.5 billion in deductions. Are you going to have to modify that you've seen our blueprint you've seen our plan our plan at this point does not allow for deductions of state and local taxes we set out to achieve a couple main goals number one was lower rates for everyone number two was simplification 
by creating simplification, we were trying to get rid of all of the loopholes and all of the deductions that mostly wealthy people use. Remember, only 25% of families in America use the itemized deductions. So when he's talking about the, 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 that deduction, he's talking about 25% of families in America. He's talking about the wealthier 25% of the families that use that deduction. We spend enormous amount of time talking about that. When you lower the rate but get rid of that deduction, for many American taxpayers, they actually end up in a better place. Is that a red line for you? It's not a red line for us. That is not a red line. We've told you where our red lines are. Our red lines are is that the business tax rate, both on the pass-through entities and the corporate entities, cannot go higher than it is in our initial proposal, and that there has to be a tax cut for hardworking middle-income Americans. We are willing to work with the tax writers on the other dials that we have in the system. So, Gary, one of the things you're proposing is simplifying uh, the way we file tax reports. We've heard about the postcard. If it's not postcard, maybe one page. Give us a sense of some no, we, we other... like We like postcard. postcard okay, postcard. Good. Let's stick with postcard. In order to get that postcard done, you're going to have to eliminate a lot of deductions. Some you've said you will not touch. What are some of the other ones that will be eliminated? For example, deduction for real estate taxes. That's actually a fair amount of money over five years as you look at it. It's like something like over $100 billion. Is that going to go away? Look, we're looking to get rid of the itemized deduction line. There are all different types of unique deductions that have worked their way into the itemized deduction bucket over decades of tax planning. What typically happened, and if you go back and look at the history, and I won't go through the history, I'll, I'll, I'll spare everyone that pain, is as we tried to modify taxes year after year after year, if we needed a vote here, they needed a vote here, you know, a certain House member or a certain Senate member said, hey, I could use this in my district or my state, and you could get my vote. So we created all these one-off little unique deductions to get the final vote we needed. We need to just get rid of them all. Let's just clean them all out, get rid of them all, get rid of that huge bucket of deductions, and really simplify the tax return where you basically take your income, you take your standard deduction, and you end up what, and you see your taxable income, and you pay your tax based on that. That's really our objective. Simplification, postcard, easy to do. You don't have to go out and hire a tax preparer. You don't have to go out and buy software. You can sit at your kitchen table and prepare your own tax return. Gary, how do you define middle class? Look, we define middle class as sort of the middle 50 to 70 percent, 50 to 80 percent of Americans. It's people earning between 60 and $160,000. It's not a simple definition in this country. As you know, we have different living standards based on cost of living in all the different states and counties in America. But we've taken a very wide definition of middle class. So, Gary, final question. We know that roughly 10% of American taxpayers pay about 80% of the taxes. If this plan goes forward just the way you want it to be, will that number go up or go down? The 10% will, 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 will the 10% be paying more than 80% of the total taxes or less? We think that the 10% will be paying about the same amount of the taxes. Okay. We think we That's great. Thank you so much, Gary. Really appreciate it. It's Gary Cohn. He's White House National Economic Council Director. David Weston. Uh, talking with Gary Cohn, Alex Steele, I think David Gurr there with the key question is for all Americans, to so all of our listeners coast to coast, what is middle class? Uh, pass throughs don't affect the middle class. I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, tax reform of 86 McKee was brilliant the other day. Yeah. That nostalgic look back at a lengthy process. One of the biggest mistakes I made out of college was trying to memorize 
the Tax Reform Act of 1976. Still got that up I there? Could, I could Still, only shave like three days a week. And, it and, was either that or pie. You know, I, you, I, you I figured out about six months. I was so dumb. I figured out six months later, why did I waste my time yeah. doing that? Well, is there a middle class left? <clears throat> well, that's the point. Mathematically, there is. Although emotionally, it's pretty fragile. And, you know, I don't fault Mr. Cohn for the way he uh, framed mathematically the middle class, but... I really wonder where they are in policy. What I really take issue with, David, and you're better at this than I am, is do you look at one tax or do you look at it like every household does, which is the sum of your taxes? Right. No, I think the latter. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And yeah. I was struck by what Gary Cohn had to say, uh, you know, on, on, on the issue of local taxes. You know, they've, they've issued their plan. This goes to Congress now. And I think it's going to be interesting to talk uh, with the congressman from yeah. the 23rd District in Upstate New is, York a little is, bit later about that, how they take this proposal and start yeah. putting some meat on the bone. So I'm going to let David Gura do this interview because he's actually lived uh, in the good congressman's district. All I can say, David, is this district is the most conservative district, and then off to the upper right is the People's Republic of Ithaca. <laughs> and that's all there is to no, say. We can, we can guess where I live within the 23rd congressional the, You know, the People's Republic of Ithaca just really upsets Congressman Reed on a day-to-day basis. Yes, I did spend some time on East Hill. No, no problem with that. Very good. Congressman <laughs> Reed, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. He's on our phone lines. You sit on the House Ways and Means Committee. I noted that you had an audience with the president a little bit earlier this week before we got the framework from the Big Six. What did you discuss at the White House? What did the president say about how he wants this rollout to go forward? Well, he, he definitely supports what we're trying to do, and that, that's to lower the, the tax burden on, on hardworking Americans. That's the middle class in particular, and, and wants to focus on creating jobs. And, and that's what we're trying to do with the immediate expensing and the other provisions when it comes to business activity. So, you know, getting into the weeds a little bit, we're, we're really trying to target this relief to where we think it can have the biggest gain for the people back home. What's this process going to be like as you see it? We've got nine pages. That's seven pages more than we had before from, from the White House, but we're going to have to get to hundreds, if not more than 1,000 pages of legislation dealing with the tax code. Is your committee going to be taking the lead on that? Who's going to be writing the actual bill? Yeah, we, we will be. Uh, obviously, it being a tax bill has to originate in the House, and it's clear to me that we on the Ways and Means Committee uh, will be going through that process of hearings and regular order to develop that legislation. And, and, and this was done intentionally in the sense of we didn't want to come out and say, here's the bill, let's vote it up or down in the middle of the night. Yeah. We want to have input. We want to make sure unintended consequences are addressed, and that's where we're going to be yeah. kicking this off uh, rather quickly. Your district sprawls from Lake Erie across just before Binghamton at New York. You go up to Hobart and uh, William Smith College in Geneva. The legacy of House Ways and Means is Barbara B. Connable from just outside your district in Rochester. Are you going to get a process on tax reform that Barbara B. Connable or Frank Horton would be familiar with? Or is it, as John McCain going to say, be just a bastardized process? No, this is going to be a sincere process. I mean, we've been working on tax reform for seven years plus on the committee that I've been there. So the foundational work is there. A lot of what we de- we've been debating and discussing is out there, but we're going to go through the legislative process to make this sausage, quote-unquote, in an open and honest way and get the input from people and, and get them in hearings and markups and the whole process that uh, we should be doing. And we're also going to reach – I co-chair the Problem Solvers Caucus, and there are good-faith uh, Democratic members that work with me in that caucus that want to solve this problem of the broken American tax code, and that's what we're working on, find those kind of, those kind of folks across the aisle that are sincere about – you know what, let's fix this for the people back home. 
What's your sense of, of what the middle class is in this country? We had Gary Cohn on the on the show a little earlier. Uh, talked about a pretty wide range of, of incomes that would, would qualify for that. Do you, does the committee have yeah. a sense of, of what you're going for when you talk about the middle class? Well, I, I can tell you what I, I look at. I mean, obviously, I look at it from the first uh, perspective of, of our district. And so when you've got a family of four from the 50,000 to 75,000 uh, folks, uh, they, that to me is a lot of hardworking Americans that are working paycheck to paycheck that are struggling. Then when you get down towards the city, you know, obviously, you get a firefighter and teacher, they're making anywhere from 150 to two and a quarter. Uh, a year that 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 relief that they need is something that I know here in their voices uh, that we want to yeah. bring to the table because they're they're living paycheck to paycheck and when they go to fill out their college for example fill out tuition assistance for college they're told you make too much money we got to reward yeah. work not penalize it Congressman some would say that Tom Reed is the last centrist standing at least of the few Republicans in the Northeast I don't know if that's true or not but uh, how is your district and their support of the president? How has it changed from Jamestown to Geneva to Ithaca and Elmira in the sense that President Obama in his first vote did nicely, second vote barely made it, and then President Trump won resoundingly against Secretary Clinton? How has the Trump support changed over the first 200-some days? Well, I, I will tell you, as you look at the, the vote tallies from those prior elections in the district, uh, we've always tilted uh, right. And, and the presidential candidate, I don't think Obama uh, lost it uh, by, I think if the numbers are right, by a couple, uh, yeah. uh, half a point or something like that. But anyway, the, the point is, is I, I think what you see represented in our district is what you see kind of with the, the Trump base, the, the Trump voters. You know, one of the, one of the reasons I supported the, the president early on as one of the first early endorsers of him on the Republican side was I heard from our people. Uh, that he was tapping into an energy, that they were just sick and tired of the status quo in Washington. So then that base is still there. That support is still there. Uh, but we are, we are blessed with a diverse district. There's no doubt about it. And I will take our message and have the conversation with anybody in downtown Ithaca, as we've done town halls there, uh, to the hinterlands of the western side of the district and, and hard right territory, too. If we were to have a, a Pinesburger at Glenwood Pines... One of my favorite things to get there on Cayuga Lake, and, and I were to ask you, what, what do you say to folks who, who are of the middle class who worry that this thing is too geared toward uh, upper-class Americans? I say stay tuned because uh, there's a lot of misinformation already being peddled out there, and I tell you, I'm committed uh, to relieving the tax burden on those middle-class, uh, hard-working people. And I'll tell you, the people across the, the, the spectrum that I'm working with, uh, they, they, they join arms in that, and that, that's where the relief needs to be. The top one person, I was there when the president said, uh, to the national press for the first time. Top 1% and the folks there, we're not looking to help them out. We're, they may even have to pay a little bit more uh, at the end of the day. I think that opens up the path to working with folks who sincerely want to govern and get it done for the American people. Tom Reed, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. The 23rd Congressional District of New York. A really What a historic district. I mean, back to the 19th century. Uh, uh, David, I mean, you know, we make jokes about Ithaca and, and all that, but it, it's a really interesting history and the great challenges of the last 40 years economically. Yeah. Tom Reed of New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.